I wonder if I might hunt for sherds in your garden. Sherds? Well, I have an archaeological interest. I'm a student of that in my own time. Old things generally. You're listening to Sherd's Podcast, a journey through the outskirts of literature. To wound the autumnal city, so howled out for the world to give him a name, the in-dark answered with wind. All you know, I know, careening astronauts and bank clerks glancing at the clock before lunch, actresses cowling at light-ringed mirrors, and freight elevator operators grinding a thumbful of grease on a steel handle, student riots. Know that dark women in bodegas shook their heads last week because in six months prices have risen outlandishly. How coffee tastes after you've held it in your mouth, cold. A whole minute. A whole minute he squatted, pebbles clutched with his left foot, the bare one, listening to his breath sound tumble down the ledges. Beyond a leafy heiress, reflected moonlight flittered. He rubbed his palms against denim. Where he was, was still. Somewhere else, wind whined. The leaves winked. That was a passage from the opening of Dahlgren by Samuel R. Delaney, which was originally published in 1975. This episode's readings are by Daniel Mills, and if you like what you hear, be sure to check out Daniel's own true crime podcast, These Dark Mountains. Since its publication, Dahlgren has had its fair share of proponents and enemies. It has been called both the best and the worst book ever to come out of the field of science fiction. Over the course of its 800 pages, we follow our main character, the kid, as he wanders listlessly through the devastated city of Bologna, located somewhere in the United States, on the border between utopia and dystopia. It is a city where time dilates and contracts, buildings spontaneously combust, and obscuring mists curl through the streets. And here, all society's misfits and outcasts have gathered under its twin moons. Join us over the next hour while we discuss this confounding classic of science fiction. We hope you enjoy our conversation. So welcome to Sherd's podcast. My name's Sam Pullum and I'm here with Rob Prouse. How are you doing, man, in these strange times? Yeah, as good as can be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's very nice to, to be doing this. Feels like a bit of a return to normality. Yeah, we've we've been gone quite a while, haven't we? It's not like we haven't been working. We've been reading this really long book. <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't know about you, but for me, it seems like a time of long books while I'm on lockdown. You know, I've cut out the, the commute, teaching from home, and, and I just seem to be drawn towards the big imposing tomes on my bookshelf and uh, this is definitely one of them yeah it's definitely a, a great moment to kind of approach some of those things that you might not have the the energy or the time for otherwise so yeah for sure for me anyway i've finished this a little bit after you when everything that's going on has kind of fully kicked in and it's a very very odd time i think to be reading a book like this quite fun because 
felt very immersive. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a glimpse into a, a possible future for us. It's definitely interesting seeing the sort of depopulated city mm. reflected back at you through your through your window, isn't it? Absolutely. And the kind of like the simmering potential tensions under the surface. In case it wasn't obvious to anyone who's downloaded this episode, today we're talking about Dahlgren by Samuel R. Delaney, a well-known, much-loved and much-maligned book. I'm wondering how you felt about reading this one, Rob. I, I really, really enjoyed it. I struggled at times, not not in terms of, you know, I think it's very readable and, and relatively easy to read. There's, uh, I'm trying to remember the words that I used in the message to you now. Was it something like a lethargic anarchy or something? Something along those yeah. lines. There's a point where you wonder what the point is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> For me anyway. But I did hugely enjoy it. Really, really enjoy it. And actually, as is so often in the way going back and, and kind of making notes and thinking about it a bit more critically for for the podcast has really opened it up yeah just wondering what what your initial thoughts because I know it was something that you were kind of it'd been kind of on your on your to-do list for a while yeah it had been on my to-do list for for a long time and I suppose it's worth saying that this book's reputation really precedes it doesn't it i've been aware of it for a really long time now probably since my early teens it came up a lot when i was reading tons of science fiction as a teenager interestingly as i've sort of alluded to earlier it's usually spoken of in one of two ways either sort of in glowing hyperbolic terms like it's called a masterpiece and a towering achievement and on my copy it calls it a joycean tour de force uh, which you might consider that term Joycean again a bit later. Theodore Sturgeon called it the best ever to come out of the genre. And then you also have people on the other side, sort of skeptics who call it meaningless and rambling. Harlan Ellison famously said that he put it down after 300 pages or so. And I think maybe this is where I'd been slightly you know hesitant to to pick it up and and really get invested in it in it because it's it's a huge investment of time isn't it and i imagined it might be really challenging and that at the end of it i could be very disappointed but that really didn't happen actually and i was i was really impressed by it but i do think that maybe the sort of elevated praise is almost as misleading as the the skepticism mm. you know for my own part i don't think there's anything remotely joycean about it uh, other than its length yeah <laughs> i don't quite understand this um joycean analogy that that seems to come up again and again and seemingly looking at you know very early reviews from the from the 70s it's there from the very beginning and i don't quite understand there's also i don't know in a lot of reviews that i've kind of read since finishing the book there seems to be this weird like almost like badge of honor amongst readers that you've managed to finish it and i found that mm. all part of the kind of like weird mythology of the book i don't think it was like crazily hard to finish no. you know as i said i i maybe felt a bit listless but i also might put that down more to kind of what was going on in the world that i found it quite odd to be reading something where the you know to be immersed in one kind of science fiction whilst another one was happening out in the window um yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh the terms that it's spoken in i mean it's a i thought it was an amazing amazing book but a lot of the critical approaches to it i felt a bit off the mark it amused me when when i asked you about the joyce thing and you 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 were saying like yeah where's all the wordplay you know yeah. where are all the illusions and the and the drinking you know it's yeah. uh, it's less 
fun than Joyce, I think, mm. linguistically, maybe. And it seems to be going for something very, very different. Yeah. I don't know if I would say that people have missed the mark necessarily. It's just that I was led to believe that this book was one kind of thing. And I think it's probably only it's only natural that a book like this can't really be encapsulated in mm. you know a pithy sort of paragraph or little blurb on the back of the, the book cover, precisely because it's so strange. I mean, it is an odd odd book isn't it yeah but just to say i guess what i had in mind was this something i feel like because it is science fiction or it's you know we'll discuss this later but um because mm. it's marketed as science fiction it's written by a science fiction writer or something previously written you know something far more traditional traditionally science fiction maybe the kind of comparisons for people to say oh no you know even if you don't like science fiction you're like this or it's it's far more literary that mm. the comparisons go a little bit over the top or don't really fit properly because there's a desire to put it in this kind of more exalted company, which I would say was a problem with how people saw science fiction, not a problem with the book. You know, say like make the comparison with Joyce to to really kind of prove this book's literary credentials. Yeah, I think I think that's absolutely true, Rob. That's a really good way of putting it. Yeah, I wouldn't say that it seems to fit into any kind of stylistic tradition, particularly. I mean, what would what kinds of things would you would you turn to in order to communicate to someone the the strangeness of this of this book, Rob? <laughs> There was elements of it that reminded me of Ballard, but that doesn't really do it justice because there's elements that are nothing like Ballard. Mm. There's probably a lot of very interesting kind of like erotic novels that I haven't read that are probably yeah. Yeah, <laughs> would be a touchstone. Um, yeah, I suppose there's a lot of kind of transgressive modernist writing that this definitely draws on but then that doesn't do it justice either and then maybe you have read some of this stuff because uh, i think maybe you've read a bit more cyberpunk type like william gibson so again something i haven't read a lot of i guess i've read maybe more theory that's come out of that than i have actually read the fiction yeah but yeah, these these kind of things. But uh, it's it's such a difficult thing because even just throwing out you know ten or fifteen different genres, I think it's a bit like some of those. It doesn't really do it justice, I don't think. No, it's... no. I mean, two two things that came up on some of the Goodreads reviews that I read were Cormac McCarthy mm. and um, and the film The Warriors, <laughs> <laughs> which uh, definitely uh, captures something about the the, the gang in this book doesn't it yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah 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 definitely but but I suppose yeah rather than sort of comparing it to other things I would point to its sort of idiosyncratic language so it's, it's quite striking to me how hard and clear the the language is and mm. and sort of seemingly uninterested in, in in any traditional kind of aesthetics you know it seems to even favor ugly words and and language uh, particularly the, in the sex scenes, which I imagine we'll, we'll get round to discussing <laughs> yeah. a little bit later. But it seems to revel in not quite the grotesque, but all the minute details of the body and its flaws and crevices mm. and the sweat and grime and <laughs> aches and itches. And yeah, it does seem to sort of roll around in the, in the, the mud of language somehow, rather than trying to, I don't know, create something more elevated. And then it's, you know, its structure is 
also really strange it has a sort of drifting structure you know the only thing that really ties it together structurally is its end and its beginning it's what might feel like a bit of an imposed circularity rather than something that runs genuinely through the book i don't necessarily mean that as a criticism because i i quite like that that listlessness in it and a kind of shapeless quality that gives this book a lot of its uniqueness and and huge part of what i really enjoyed about it this feeling that it could be anything it could be really grotesque and sinister at one moment then kind of sex crazed and then suddenly <laughs> tender and yeah. intellectual and just I just like that that it seems to encompass so much you said it very early on that there's um I don't know yeah it captures this listlessness or the kind of the weird boredom that actually comes with as we're finding out the kind of um, upending of social norms and the, the slight breakdown of society that actually although these structures can seem very restrictive they also facilitate a certain movement I guess what we see in the city of Bologna where this is set that although they have a, a seeming freedom and there's a certain utopian element you know that they've done away with money very quickly they're also they just don't really do very much yeah um and that makes the book slightly difficult to read sometimes but it was also absolutely essential and captures this amazing tone rumor says there's practically no power here Neither television cameras nor on-the-spot broadcasts function. That such a catastrophe as this should be opaque, and therefore dull, to the electric nation. It is a city of inner discordances and retinal distortions. Beyond the bridge mouth, the pavement shattered. One live street lamp lit five dead ones, two with broken globes. Climbing a ten-foot, tilted asphalt slab that jerked once under him, rumbling like a live thing, he saw pebbles roll off the edge, heard them clink on fugitive plumbing, then splash somewhere in darkness. He recalled the cave, and vaulted to a more solid stretch whose cracks were mortared with nubby grass. No lights in any near buildings, but down those waterfront streets, beyond the veils of smoke, was that fire. Already used to the smell, he had to breathe deeply to notice it. The sky was all haze. Buildings jabbed up into it and disappeared. Light? At the corner of a four-foot alley, he spent ten minutes exploring, just because the lamp worked. Across the street, he could make out concrete steps, a loading porch under an awning, doors, a truck had overturned at the block's end. Nearer, three cars, windows rimmed with smashed glass, squatted on skewed hubs like frogs gone marvelously blind. His bare foot was calloused enough for gravel and glass, but ash kept working between his foot and his remaining sandal to grind like finest sand, work its way under, and silt itself with his sweat. So you have something to tell us about Samuel R. Delaney's life, Rob. Yeah, and interestingly, I mean, you know, we've covered all sorts of different authors here, some of whom there's very little about. Samuel Delaney is quite the opposite. There's a huge amount. And what's been incredibly interesting, having a bit more time than usual to kind of really delve into this, is that it really feels like, especially more recently, the, the interview is a form that he's completely taken into his own you know and expanded to be this way of him kind of like writing and teaching and so there's a huge amount of 
written interviews and it, I think he's very keen on the kind of written interview rather than the recorded spoken interview mm. you know so I'm just about to give a very potted biography but there's a huge amount of information out there and I personally have found it in, yeah so engrossing to to kind of read his thoughts in this interview form so I'd, anyone who hears this podcast and is a bit more you know doesn't maybe know so much about Delaney and wants to know a bit more I'd highly recommend there's so much online and it's yeah very interesting my uh, my short and hopefully slightly interesting version is <laughs> that um yeah so he's he's born on 1st of April April Fool's Day in 1942 and raised in Harlem he's from you know what he describes as a kind of middle class black family not rich but certainly not poor either his mother is uh, works in the public library and his father runs a funeral home and the family live in the top two floors above that he's also got quite distinguished family so his aunts are Sadie and Bessie Delaney who are civil rights pioneers and interestingly writer book in the 2000 is it 2000 yeah it must be in the 2000s late 2000s when they're something like 99 it becomes like a bestseller and they kind of go into the guinness book of records for oldest chart-topping authors or something like that oh wow anyway yeah and his his grandfather is the first black bishop of the episcopal church and it's also um yeah an educator as well so the family lived above this funeral home and it's something very interesting i mean delaney's father dies in 1960 so he's still very young i haven't read anything about the fact that, you know, this close proximity to death, you think that might come into things a bit, but I didn't read anything about that. Perhaps I mm. read the right things, but anyway. Yeah, he attends the Dalton School, which um, is predominantly white school. He's one of three black pupils there, one of which is his cousin. He attends there from 1951 to 56, and he spends his summer in uh, camps, the um, woodland camp in New York and it's kind of notable because it's at this point that he invents his own name so apparently he's very envious of people who have nicknames and so he turns up to camp one day and tells everyone to call him Chip and mm. apparently that is how he's commonly known. The Dalton school that he went to is very much a kind of like a white school and I guess like probably quite middle class or upper middle class he's going to say and he's said somewhere that his uh, fiction is an attempt to recreate the transcultural experience of riding the bus from the Harlem city's wealth-ridden Upper East Side and back. So that kind of bus journey to school took him through you know, hugely various areas and you can I quite, quite like that as a as a kind of way of reading the the different class groups and the kind of disintegrating version of that that we see mm. in Dahlgren. He then goes to the Bronx High School of Science and he meets his future wife, the poet Marilyn Hacker there. Also, Delaney is described as a, a polymath in various different interviews and kind of reviews of his work that I've read. And uh, worth mentioning that 1957, he... Um, wins honourable mention in the science fair because he built his own computer, which is kind of just bonkers to think that oh, wow. he could do that in 1957. But anyway, mm. a nice little anecdote. After leaving Bronx High School in 1961, he marries Hacker, age 19, I think he is, and maybe she's a, a year old or so, and they move to East Village. He also, in his own words, follows Hacker to the City College of New York, although he drops out after a single semester. But it's around this time that Hacker is working as the assistant editor at Ace Books and adds one of Delaney's 
manuscripts to um, the pile of works to be reviewed and it's how he comes to publish his first novel The Jewels of Apta which uh, he publishes age 20 so uh, yeah we've got a bit of time to make it catch up Sam with our first novels yeah yeah. (laughs) Um, the marriage with Hacker was very much a kind of open one and it's said that both Delaney and Hacker as a frequent extramarital affairs worth noting partners of both genders and Delaney I think now very much self-defines as a gay man despite this however this marriage seems to offer them some kind of stability and the, the comfort of living as a family then between 1962 and 1968 publishes many more science fiction novels and travels a lot and lives in fact in in England he lives in in Marlebone quite a strange part of London to find yourself living in. Very, very posh. Yeah, exactly. I don't know what it was like at that point, but anyway. But also after after travelling, him and Hacker begin to live separately. And quite interestingly at this point, he then goes to live communally for a few months with a folk rock band called Heavenly Breakfast. (laughs) Um, That sounds awful. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I think, you know, this, I would imagine, I haven't read this in from his own words but I would imagine definitely informs the kind of communal living that we see in in Dalgran yeah but it's also at this point uh after 1968 that there's a, a kind of big pause in his writing output it does publish some things and notably in fact in 1972 he directs a f- short film called The Orchid which I wasn't able to find out too much information about so I don't know if it does have any tie-ins with the uh, the brass orchids of mm. Dalgren but the production one of the members of the production team was Adolphus Meekus who's the brother of Jonas Meekus so it's a very um, interesting time to be kind of writing and making yeah um, making films the reason he was living with this um, <laughs> heavenly breakfast is because he was he was a musician with them too so um, again bits of Dalgran where they're producing music I guess are kind of informed by that too but so then it's in 1975 after this kind of pause that the novel Dalgran which um from reading the the review in the New York Times I think it is was really you know people were really really waiting on this you know it was like the well, probably not like the next Harry Potter, but, um, <laughs> you know, it's, um, people were very, very excited about this. Despite everything we've said earlier, it's well, certainly difficult to read, but it, it sells um, incredibly well. And then, as you've mentioned, also does get uh, some very poor responses, often from within the science fiction community. And it's after this that Delaney kind of starts the the life that we kind of know today, where he is publishing still quite a lot. Uh, lots of science fiction, but also moves into literary criticism, often focusing on science fiction, interviews, essays, philosophy, and his teaching all over the US, right up until 2015. There's so, so much, obviously, you know, that really just takes us to 78 and goes right through yeah. to the present. There's a huge amount we could say, but it's probably not worth saying too much more here. I think maybe it's worth mentioning that uh, he's also dyslexic, right? Yeah, and this is very interesting bits in kind of interviews about his early life where um, obviously it wasn't really understood as a, in the same way as a you know, disorder or you know, thing that is understood now. And um, he was sent to therapy to try and cure his his dyslexia and I think he has a a lot to to write about that because one element that he was definitely repressing or wasn't really able to understand fully was his sexuality but what Mm. was being addressed in these therapy sessions was supposedly his um, his dyslexia but from what he himself has said it's kind of necessitated a a certain approach to language that was very structural um Mm. 
and that he has always understood sentences a lot better than words because his spelling was often very poor and he would learn to spell something and forget it and often get it wrong but he was able to focus much much more on on kind of grammar and sentences he's also sort of gone on record as saying that the kid is also dyslexic Mm, according to him and just on that idea of understanding sentences i'm sure i read him talking about gertrude stein the paragraph is the emotional unit of the english Mm. language kid turned and looked at the shrouded city like something crusty under smoke its streets stuck blind in it its colors pearled and pasteled. So much distance was implied in the limited sight. I could leave this vague, vague city. But holding all his humor in, he turned back toward the underpass. Now and again, his face struck into grotesque. Where is this city center, he wondered, and walked, left leg a little stiff, while buildings rose again to receive him. Free of name and purpose, what do I gain? I have logic and laughter, but can trust neither my eyes nor my hands. The tenebrous city, city without time, the generous saprophytic city, it is morning, and I miss the clear night. Reality. The only moment I ever came close to it was when on the moonless New Mexican desert, I looked up at the prickling stars on that hollow, hollow dark. Day. It is beautiful there, true, fixed in the layered landscape, red, brass, and blue. But it is distorted as distance itself, the real all masked by pale diffraction. Buildings, bony and cluttered with ornament, hulled with stone at their different heights, window, lintel, Cornice and sills patterned the dozen planes. Billows brushed down them, sweeping at dusts they were too insubstantial to move, settled to the pavement and erupted in slow explosions he could see two blocks ahead, but when he reached, they had disappeared. I am lonely, he thought, and the rest is bearable. I thought it might be worth just as a kind of opening question about the book to consider like how far you think of it as an example of science fiction I mean it's worth saying I suppose at the beginning yeah I assume this about you as well but I'm very comfortable with the indeterminacy of genre and Mm. complete genre fluidity but the reason I bring it up at all is because it's routinely placed squarely in that genre isn't it and you know that's where you'll find it in a bookshop and obviously his publishing history before that is also very firmly in in science fiction as well but did this one feel like science fiction to you yeah it's strange isn't it i mean certain elements certainly do these kind of light sculpture wearable i don't even know how to describe them but the um yeah these these kind of light animals that enclose the members of the scorpions gang yeah very much science fiction kind of trope and then of course the slightly unexplained disaster that's fallen on the city Mm. so i think you know there's obviously elements that you could say yes absolutely but it's it's hard isn't it because it's also like we don't call infinite jest science fiction because it you know is set in a near future slightly dystopian and um has things like video calling before video Mm. calling was a thing yeah there's a great there's a great section on video calling and the 
the sort of um, avatars that would mm. be used in it. It's, it's very self-contained. It's worth tracking down. Yeah. I think it's a perfect piece of writing. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so um, it's really hard to say. But as you say, I don't have any problem with the genre fluidity. But equally, I have no problem. You know, I don't you have no squeamishness about science fiction either. You know, I'm very happy and quite excited to sit down and read some good science fiction. Thinking of it in comparison with the only other Samuel R. Delaney book that I've read. I read it in my teens, so it's quite a while ago. That's Babel 17. Mm. You know, and that book plainly makes use of certain conventions of science fiction even if its concerns are to do with language and you know, linguistics but it, it contains spaceships and alien races and space travel and so on but I felt like this book doesn't really seem on its surface to to appeal to any of you know any such conventions really or, or, or tropes associated with science fiction you know I was trying to sort of enumerate the ways in which it might be considered science fiction and I couldn't really I mean I could enumerate some of its fantastical elements whether just kind of in, invented aspects of a world may necessarily make something science fiction I don't know certainly speculative perhaps you know so I thought obviously it takes place in a city of the author's invention it's not a real place and doesn't seem to be identified with one particular city in the real world you know, it might have its origin in several I don't know cities torn apart by social strife or you know poverty-stricken cities in, in Delaney's mind or experience you know there's the mist that hangs over the city and curls through the streets this idea of the houses almost like self-combusting sometimes mm. or they're just burning there's the two moons in the sky which might be quite science fictional in, in character one of which is uh, interestingly named after the character George Harrison whom I'm sure we'll come to talk about a bit later yeah there are other like celestial phenomena aren't there the, the sky turning neon orange and it yeah at one point i really enjoyed that passage actually it seems like the sun is in supernova or something mm. there's the projectors the hologrammatic projections that you mentioned and obviously time not flowing as it does in the real world as well although we're given to understand that it could be the result of a sort of warped subjectivity but none of those things really scream out science fiction in terms yeah. of what what the, the kind of basic elements that you might expect to find in in, in a book from that genre. I read um I read a really nice quote just from a yeah like a review that said whilst we perhaps traditionally think of science fiction as a space opera, what Dahlgren gives us is a space time opera, mm. which I think is um, quite a nice way of putting it. Yeah, that's really nice. Maybe there's a kind of meta element to the um, science fiction of whereas traditionally science fiction might be this kind of act of world building and uh, imagining a whole other world mm. what sort of seems to be happening here is the horror or the incomprehensibility of a logic of science fiction suddenly becoming apparent in a real world and mm. you know thinking about what happens when suddenly two moons appear or this yeah supernova sun appears or um, the technologies as you say you know the the holograms one of my favorite scenes as just a kind of like little bit was when they f suddenly find the warehouse and yeah. it has and it has all the um, all the equipment <laughs> so the holograms are there and these kind of uh, optical chains are there and the kid keeps seeing people at moments of heightened anxiety with their eyes blood red and there's like boxes you know imported from wherever of these kind of eye coverings that are red yeah and it was just like some very funny joke about it was almost like this is the kind of store cupboard where Delaney himself has pulled yeah. bits for his novel <laughs> 
Um, but it's also the breakdown of, you know, it's, it's what the kid is experiencing going on in his head. Is it a science fiction being imposed upon the world by mental illness? Or is this, I don't know, the layering is, the, the science fiction seems to be one of these layers and it's never entirely sure exactly where that fits, I suppose. Yeah, there is a kind of a blurring of the, the real and the unreal in it, isn't there? This unreal city feels very real in some ways Mm. i think there is a huge element of world building there Mm. in it it's it's atmosphere yeah it's it's, it's like subtly developed over time and it it feels like a sort of city at the end of the world a kind of broken depopulated ruin you know but it's still functioning and i like that from the opening sentence of the book it's referred to as the autumnal city you know immediately gives us this sense of its sort of moribund quality but as you say there's all there's it's also you know and we'll talk about this more when we think about the, the sort of metafictional elements of it but it's also very conscious of its artificiality somehow perhaps in the ways that characters respond to their physical environment there's no sort of acceptance of of its strangeness it's something that is recognized all the time isn't it by yeah. people com- comment up upon it rather than just sort of existing within it as they might in a pure secondary world fantasy they seem to be conscious of its peculiarity and perhaps its science fictional qualities don't they and uh, you know it's often kind of remarked that actually maybe quite a lot of the characters have traveled to this city precisely because it's like that they want to have some kind of new experience or get away from something just on that sort of world building note i've just listening to Delaney talk about it as well he seems to have been very conscious of the way that it might reflect real world circumstances Mm. you know we're saying that perhaps it doesn't seem to be one particular city but he does seem to be responding to circumstances in urban environments of his own of his own period i was interested to find that in a an interview which is referenced in this todd comer article i read called playing at birth samuel r delaney stalgren delaney talks about how he'd originally conceived as the novel as five novels in which five dissimilar governments would be overthrown by a group of people exercising the, the wonderful worldview of the flower children this writer coma goes on to say that Bologna feels distinctly like a city torn apart by race riot and that readers of of, of Dahlgren at the time would have been incapable of understanding Bologna as anything other than a near analogue of, of cities recently torn apart by urban riots. So there is this very strong real world quality about it as well. Dahlgren is a novel that is about the kinds of devastation that hit almost all major American cities. And I think there's also something very interesting reading later and later kind of reviews of this or, you know, more critical pieces of writing that um, Mm. whereas, again, if we go back to the example of the video calling an infinite jest, the Mm. real world just caught up with it. So what something which is seen as this kind of like satire of the future actually just became the future. It doesn't feel quite the same that, you know, there's these continued parallels with what's happened in Detroit and what's happened after Hurricane Katrina that mirrors this, but they mirror it in exactly the 
same way that this is written. It's not like um, the future has come to pass. It's kind of the, the future remains. Uh, all the, you know, the things that he will have seen and kind of fed into this image of a city riven by race politics and um, kind of falling down and spontaneously combusting. They're actually just still the exact same things. It's no, nothing has changed. They're still areas that are being left to crumble and fall away and uh, without effective kind of like government and kind of left for better mm. or worse to the to the people that live there. I was also thinking about how the name of the city is quite interesting in, in the way that it straddles a kind of reality and artificiality because it comes from as is fairly well documented uh, the name of a Roman goddess of, of war and uh, the name it derives from the same root as the Latin bellum so just war like in bellicose and interbellum and so on and I noticed that the name Bologna was originally duolona uh, in the Italic languages which is a prefix from the ancient Greek word for suffering and pain and I think that there's certainly this sort of weary tone, weary atmosphere in the city, kind of ennui seems to flow through it. But then also this idea of a city broken by civil strife. And I thought that could be really relevant. But the, the where the duality for me comes in, and this might just sound silly, I don't know, <laughs> but it is something I thought of. The American term baloney <laughs> me- meaning nonsense right um, yeah. you know it really struck me that that as william gibson said the the book has been called a riddle that was never meant to be solved and and delaney apparently agrees with him but that nonsensical side or artificiality is is also kind of encapsulated in the very name of the the, the city which i thought was quite interesting i, I uh, like that a lot definitely yeah that's a really that's a really nice uh, i hadn't thought of it at all but yeah, yeah. So. <laughs> If you've got a problem with that, you know, take yeah. it up with me <laughs> at sharedspodcast.gmail.com. <laughs> William Gibson says in his introduction, Dalgan is a, a riddle that was never meant to be solved. And, and I think fundamentally he's right. It's a book that doesn't give you a certain kind of answer. It offers a whole set of answers, of possible answers. And you have to negotiate your way through them and decide which one seems the most interesting answer to you. In any case, it doesn't feel like very much science fiction I've ever read. No. But then it doesn't feel like anything else I've ever <laughs> read either. So, so perhaps it doesn't, it doesn't matter too much. But I, I think that had I read it when, as a teenager, I was pretty much reading science fiction exclusively, mm. I might have felt slightly misled by, <laughs> by its marketing. Somewhere in this city is a character they call The Kid. Age, ambiguous. Racial origin, same. True name, unknown. He lives among a group whose alleged viciousness is only surpassed by their visible laziness, over which he holds a doubtful authority. They call themselves Scorpions. He is the supposed author of a book that has been widely distributed in town. Since it is the only book in town, that it is the most discussed work of the season is a dubious distinction. That, and the intriguing situation of the author, tend to blur accurate assessment of its worth. I admit, I am intrigued. Today I cut down the block where I had heard the scorpions had their nest. What kind of street do they live on? In the grammar of another city, 
that sentence would hold the implication. What kind of street are they more or less constrained by society to live on, given their semi-outlaw status, their egregious manner and outfit, and the economics of their asocial position? In Bologna, however, the same words imply a complex freedom, a choice from hovel to mansion complex, because every hovel and every mansion sustains, through that choice, some remnant of our ineffable catastrophe. In any house here, movement from room to room is a journey from a place where twin moons have cast double shadows of the windowsills upon the floors, to a place where, once, because the sun had grown so immense, no shadow was cast at all. We speak another language here. Is the real importance of his pamphlet that I've been browsing over all morning that, unlike the newspaper, it is the only thing in the city written in this language? If it is the only thing said, by default it must be the best thing. Anyone sensitive to language, living in this mess miasma, must applaud it. Is there any line in it, however, that would be comprehensible outside city limits? Also wonder if writing about myself in the third person is really the way to go about losing or making a name. My life here more and more resembles a book whose opening chapters, whose title even, suggests mysteries to be resolved only at closing. But as one reads along, one becomes more and more suspicious that the author has lost the thread of his argument, that the questions will never be resolved, or more upsetting, that the position of the characters will have so changed by the book's end that the answers to the initial questions will have become trivial. It is Troy, Sodom, Abel Koyak, the city of Dreadful, I was struck many times, I, I suppose, right right from the beginning by the ways in which this book seems to be self-conscious literary artefact. And I like William Gibson's term for it in, in the introduction very much. He calls Dahlgren a prose city. Mm, yeah. So so yeah, nice, yeah, such a great way yeah. of describing it, I think. I mean, I, I don't know, but I imagine he meant by that uh, that the book itself was kind of labyrinthine and monumental, perhaps. But I think of it almost in quite literal terms, that the book's narrative is constantly aware of its own constructed nature. You know, I'll, I'll talk about when that's perhaps most apparent in the, in, the, in the final chapter a little bit later. But just reading into this a little bit, I, I've I found some articles on it, one one by Teresa L. Ebert, or Ebert, called The Convergence of Postmodern Innovative Fiction and Science Fiction, An Encounter with Samuel R. Delaney's Technotopia. And she calls these kinds of works meta-science fiction, a term that I'm a little uncomfortable with because of the way perhaps that it, it separates science fiction from the rest of literature even as it aims to unite them yeah anyway she just she describes it this way she says meta science fiction acquires its narrative force from laying bare the conventions of science fiction and subverting its transparent language of mimesis and believability instead of using a language which is only a means for achieving other ends such as telling an appealing and suspenseful story it employs self-reflexive language aware of its own aesthetic status and artificiality not only language but other components of fiction such as character plot and point of view are handled with aesthetic self-consciousness in a manner that makes it impossible to take them for anything but what they actually are 
created literary characters, made up plots and so forth. Which I think is, is very true of, of this book, actually. So from very early on, we get the notion that Delaney is playing with the conventions of storytelling. For instance, the book's opening chapter quite comically kind of lays down the groundwork for a kind of hero's quest narrative quite distinctly. And I was wondering if Delaney was interested perhaps in Joseph Campbell's well-known concept of the monomyth and the hero's journey in that book, The Hero of a Thousand Faces. You know that book, Rob? No, I don't, actually. It's a seminal text in narrative studies. You know, it's this idea that across all human cultures of all periods the same narrative structures appear again and again. Campbell splits this structure into its sort of rudiments and goes through a number of recurring elements like he splits it into three so departure, initiation and return and he draws on fairy tales myths and epic poems and so on but within the subheadings there are sorry within those brought that broad categorization there are sort of smaller ideas so a book will begin or a story will begin with a call to adventure and the meeting with the mentor and so on and so on and it's just curious to me that rather than beginning with a departure Dahlgren begins very distinctly with an arrival Mm. you know I suppose in other words there's no normality from which we enter into the extraordinary this idea of the quest is is set up very quickly you know if you think about the things that are sort of bestowed upon the kid at the beginning so a name a weapon armor uh he's even sort of anointed Mm. in a certain way you know it's kind of pathetically recast in the sex act and this this writer mary k bray has commented on how this is shown distinctly in the terms of a knightly quest when the kid says to himself three gifts he thought weapon armor title and all these things are kind of set up as a quest of mythic proportions but they're always undermined just like the departure is undermined or subverted as a kind of arrival the figure of tack who who might take the place of the mentor this this big blonde biker type that he meets quite early on and then has uh, underwhelming sex with him uh, <laughs> or or to, or to use Delaney's term balls him almost <laughs> immediately were you conscious of that setting up of these these kinds of conventions and then deconstructing them or destroying them I guess, yeah, in a way. I mean, I maybe didn't think quite so much about how they'd been subverted. I think, yeah, you know, Delaney does make it very clear to us that he's kind of playing with that introduction. And then it kind of shapes the way the narrative takes place and that kid kind of, without really understanding why, for us, but also for the character of kid himself, he kind of is elevated slowly through the ranks of the kind of the gangs and and becomes the talk of the town. Everyone's interested in his life. And this obviously makes far more sense in this traditional narrative of the hero I suppose Mm. but perhaps that's yeah exactly it the the constant questioning that kid does in the internal monologue but also just to the other people around him of asking you know why why are people interested in me why are all these this group of kind of feral teenagers why have they adopted me as their leader Uh, Mm. (laughs) traditionally the hero might question the quest or question their ability to perform it but doesn't question their place in the narrative in the way that kid kind of does just just on that that idea that you're talking about the sort of questioning of where he's where he sits in the in the narrative is sort of explicitly pointed out at the beginning when he has this conversation he's asked what do you want to change in the world what do you want to preserve what is the thing you're searching for what are you running away from and he responds nothing 
and nothing and nothing <laughs> and nothing. Yeah. <laughs> At least that I know. You have no purpose, she asks. I want to get to Bologna. Mine's the same as everybody else's, in real life anyway, to get through the next second consciousness intact. And then she asks, really? Then be glad you're not just a character scrawled in the margins of somebody else's lost notebook. <laughs> so his sort of literary constitution is, is sort of uh, alluded to. And his unsuitability as a hero of a, of a, of a novel is sort of highlighted here, I think. You know, so he p- proclaims explicitly, has no purpose, and his reality in the world, in the real world, is questioned right from the outset. But I I think that undermining of traditional plot mechanics is something that's carried throughout the entire text. The aimless drift of the plot that I was talking about and the kids' characterization, to me, was quite purposeful. And maybe this is a strange reference to turn to, but for me it sort of echoed the situationist concept of the derive do you know this one rob Mm. in that it sort of deconstructs literary artifice just as the derive aimed to deconstruct the commercial imperatives of the city by sort of wandering through it Uh, not impelled by those imperatives but explicitly without purpose the kid does something similar you know he's very fluid in terms of his characterization times he's sort of eloquent and insightful and maybe that's only internally then he can be very naive and brash and sometimes i don't know if you got this impression not particularly bright so Mm. he often seems lost in conversations with others often seems quite unremarkable but somehow found himself as the hero of a novel inverted commas in inverted commas you know without really knowing what to do with it and so i was thinking of this aimlessness as almost i don't know i don't know if this term exists but sort of (laughs) anti-literature it seems to want to expose its own literary artifice precisely in order to circumvent what that artifice consists of and and for me as the best way i could think about its metafictional qualities as something quite rebellious or explicitly destructive do you feel that there's a, a shift in authorial voice at the beginning i thought that we were reading about kid and then there was a point later on when suddenly i was like no hang on we are reading something written by kid it's quite interesting isn't it that throughout there's a shift in perspective so we move between the third person you know in which the book is mostly written and then the and then the first person there are references later to writing about myself in the fir- in the third person when mm. the kid seems to kid's voice seems to take over the narrative fully in the final section the anathemata or the plague journal but that's also the same point at which the book's narrative consistency begins to really fragment and a number of layers begin to emerge some of which are beyond the text some some of which seem deeper within it it begins to include commentaries upon itself from within and from without for instance i think this is the kid speaking and he says my life here more and more resembles a book whose opening chapters whose title even suggests mysteries to be resolved at closing but as one reads along one becomes more and more suspicious that the author has lost the thread of his argument that the questions will never be resolved or more upsetting that the position of the characters will have so changed by the book's end that the answers to the initial questions would have become trivial it is Troy, Sodom, Abel, Tuyuk, the city of dreadful. 
And so I think the final section is where the book explicitly or, you know, openly without any vacillation starts to question its own literary nature. Yeah, but there was also an earlier moment just after the kid kind of wakes and is told by Lanya that he's in fact been missing for a number of days when he thinks it's a day at most. Mm. And he meets George Harrison in the church and it's very much in the third person and George Harrison's voice is written as he would speak it. So it's a a kind of like a rendering of like a very heavy accent. Mm. And then there's an interjection from the kid that sort of seems to suggest he can't go on because it's not rendering the voice properly. Yeah, And everything from George Harrison after that is just written in plain English. It's at the point when the kind of temporal breakdown begins, but it's much, much earlier than the, the final chapter. And it suddenly opened a bit of a trapdoor or like uh, suddenly brought an awful lot into question of exactly who, you know, what was this, the voice we were hearing? Because there was a dissatisfaction with being able to get down George's voice correctly or that it was in some way not a true rendering mm. yeah but there's there's also the, the sort of muddling of the notebook in the text and and the novel mm. itself there seems to be moments of crossover between them yeah when it's maybe not apparent but at least uh, suggested that the text we are reading is the commentary within the within the notebook or that the text that the kid publishes were not in fact written by by him mm. there's another voice remember this part about lingual synthesis which seems to be the work of a philosophy student or something uh, like yeah. that yeah, um, yeah. so there's a sort of garbling a melding of all these different voices and a, a kind of lack of clarity as to whose is is kind of dominating the narrative i suppose this kind of traditional hero character obviously is very purposeful mm. and it suggests the purpose is something that kind of unifies both externally and internally and one of the things that is obviously being explicitly addressed here is is mental health and the kids kind of mental health and so it breaks down that unity which is implied by the kind of hero's quest and that through these kind of various devices meta-fictional devices it might kind of undermine that slightly by association it has the the same it has a similar impact on on the reader and that and that's kind of what is referred to in that passage i read from the book when the kid talks about his his life resembling a book that feels like it's it's not going to be resolved i think the reader's desire for that kind of unity is thwarted as well right um certainly the layers of artifice being exposed aid or reinforce that i think i also think it's it's interesting that the city is often referred to as an internal landscape or a city of inner discordances and, and retinal distortions so both the idea that it might be a city of internal construction you know in the in the, in the mind of the of the kid perhaps but also that that is necessarily in itself fragmented so so that those cities that are mentioned at the end of that paragraph that i read troy sodom Mm. Uh, the city of of dreadful that those are all cities that have either been destroyed lost and then later excavated or that they never existed at all so i suppose in other words they they are cities that exist as projections of, of the imagination and you know let's remember that at the beginning the kids wants to 
get through the next second with his uh, <laughs> consciousness yeah. in, intact. I mean, maybe he does get through the novel with his consciousness intact in to some degree, but he has very little to show for it. Certainly no depth of understanding. And, yeah. and nor do we, that we've just passed through this prose city of, of inner discordances and retinal distortions and are unable to make a, a unified whole with it. You know, the fact that we end up with the kind of this famous circularity of ending up at the beginning of the sentence and we've started with the end of that same sentence, you know, to, to literally finish up where you started is yeah. <laughs> the, the very the very definition of um, like not understanding. Like if, yeah. you, if you're like, you've just read 800 pages or whatever it is. Yeah. And you're just back where you started, yeah. <laughs> which is, yeah. Um, yeah, the absolute, the most fundamental undermining of the idea of like a, a quest or uh, some kind of like end point that you could imagine. Yeah, that's a brilliant way to put it. Kid, look at that. Will you? Huh? What? He looked up. The sky. He heard footsteps, lowered his eyes. The blonde girl was hurrying down the street. Frowning, he looked up again. Streamed with black and silver, the smoke, so low and limitless before, had rattled into billows, torn and flung by some high wind that did not reach down to the street. Hints of a moon struck webs of silver on the raveling mist. He moved against Lanya's shoulder, she too had glanced after the girl, all warm down his side. Her short hair brushed his arm. I've never seen it like that before. And then louder. Tack, has it ever been like that before? Someday I'm going to die, he thought, irrelevantly, but shook the thought away. Damn, Lufer took off his cap. Not since I've been here. He was holding his jacket over his shoulder by one finger. How do you like that, Jack? Maybe it's finally breaking up. They started to the corner, still staring. That's the first time here I've seen the... Then Lanya stopped. They all stopped. He swallowed hard. With his head back, it tugged uncomfortably at his Adam's apple. Through one rent, the lunar disk had appeared. Then, as the aperture moved with the wind, he saw a second moon, lower in the sky, smaller. It was in some crescent phase. Jesus, Jack said. The smoke came together again, tore away. Now wait just a goddamn minute, Tack said. Once more, the night was lit by the smaller but distinctly lunar crescent. A few stars glittered near it. The smoke closed here, opened there, the gibbous moon shone above it. Before the bar door, another group had gathered, craning at the violated night. Two pulling a bottle back and forth came loose, came close. What the hell? The sky cleared again under two lights, crescent and near fall. Is that? Tack demanded. Someone else said. What do you think it is? A sun? The moon. One gestured with his foaming bottle. Then what's that? One pulled the bottle from the other's hand. That's another. 
That one's George. They reeled off, spilling liquor. In the gathered group, people laughed. You hear that, George? You got a goddamn moon named after you. And out of the laughter and chatter, a louder laugh rose. One thing that runs through this is that there is this strange figure in the book who perhaps does understand things, maybe, or has a certain amount of control, which is the figure of Calkins, the strange kind of newspaper editor slash demigod. Um, you know, there's a hugely fragmented sense of time within the book, but there is, on a certain level, that seems to be controlled by by Calkins. You know, the things where he says to the kid that his the launch party for his book of poems will be in the third three Sundays time, but that doesn't mean three Sundays as we understand it of three three weeks it's whenever he chooses to put three dates of Sundays yeah. into the newspaper the dates that he puts in the newspaper are, you know whatever he fancies so it can be the same day three days in a row or whatever so he has this enormous control over the time as it's experienced by the residents of Bologna and I think that definitely feeds into the class and very much race politics of the book it's shot through from the very beginning but certainly towards the end the kind of sections where Kid and the Scorpions go to Kelkins for this party to launch his poetry book it's very much a kind of meeting of of two groups you know there's a feeling that a huge amount of the reason this is going on is because there's a curiosity about the Scorpions who are primarily black did you get that impression yeah I, I think so yeah. yeah I mean they're often pointed out if they're white so yeah and perhaps if you end up as part of a marginalized group these elements of your life will be controlled down to the very idea that you may not get your own experience of time that <laughs> uh, this will be very much controlled from without and actually so much of the kind of racial politics is really really complicated and up until quite recently reading more about more critical things about the book but also mainly Delaney's own words was something that made me feel quite uncomfortable reading it the the race politics that exist within the book you know it's a very very different way of talking about race to the way hopefully uh people talk about race you know there's a lot of kind of like racial slurs yeah that are used yeah. and kind of thrown around quite lightly there's a lot of stereotyping things like this mm. uh, and there's a lot of kind of racial violence it wasn't that i thought that it shouldn't be in the book at all but it makes it difficult to read there are moments of sort of discomfort surrounding that but i never felt that the delaney was unconscious about Mm. Any, oh no! Any, any of the offence that could be caused by it? No, no, not at all. Whenever it's used in the authorial voice, it felt like it was kind of used on a plane of understanding between that voice and and the other characters, rather than purely slurs or or uh, as as stereotypes. Whenever we do see pure expressions of prejudice, they're kind of outlined to us through a certain character's perception maybe the character of george in the beginning and i think maybe this is why it's quite interesting that perhaps there is a shift in the authorial voice because at the beginning we kind of meet the character of george solely through the kind of recollections or the understanding descriptions of the mostly white kind of dropouts who are living you know the, the flower children who are living yeah. in the park and even though supposedly he's elevated to uh, a godlike or mythical status there is an enormous 
immense amount of racial stereotyping that goes on within that. Oh, yeah, yeah. And then it's, you know, later on as we, we kind of shift that perspective, but we also meet the character George himself, things shift hugely. And become maybe even more complicated and, and challenging, I think. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, that was the thing is that, yeah, I guess that initial thing I was talking about with Calkins is um, that's a very clear and crisp and easy way of talking about race in the book. But actually, it's worth saying, I think, that this definitely isn't a crisp and clear and easy look at race and that's what makes it so interesting Mm. i was interested in the kind of language especially within the the group of scorpions reading about delaney's own experience i suppose talking about how different words had this very different weight to them i suppose depending on how they were or who they were coming from sorry Mm. that his his father would use things that now we would consider to be very offensive but only when he was very angry but it meant something incredibly different and in fact Delaney even speaks about it kind of being a necessary desensitizing thing hearing it come from his father because it meant that when he did eventually hear it from a white person and it was meant hatefully Mm. it was much easier to deal with and I kind of wondered because the the scorpions occupy this strange you know I suppose this is being written in 75 and and the kind of the dream of the flower children has uh, evaporated slightly Mm. and I was quite interested did you I mean did you see the lives or the kind of way of living that the scorpions have and the way of being together was did it have an element like a utopian element to it did you think i i think that's supposed to be there i mean i would say perhaps not in the scorpions particularly but perhaps in the in the commune that's suggested a little bit more because when we get to the section of the book where the kid is is kind of the leader of the scorpions it's an awful lot of bickering and fighting and eating each other's food and things like that (laughs) they seem to grow more and more immature and and and, uh, and naive and not particularly conscious of the politics of the mode of life that they're they're living where it's most apparent to me the sort of utopian quality I don't know how you would call it but the, the, the freedom seems to be in the, the sexual politics more than the racial politics this is where any preconceptions that you might have no matter how sort of liberal you consider yourself to be in such matters mm. this is where they're challenged the most that's what I felt most challenged by particularly with the introduction of the character of Denny who is 15 years old or something like Mm, that yeah yeah yeah. it's never quite made clear but it's yeah he's certainly very young he's almost sort of forced into a kind of um, menage a trois um, (laughs) and and is effectively raped by the kid at at the opening of that Um, Mm. but then they come to a kind of loving understanding between the three of them which you know, perhaps might not sound particularly utopian, but it does. It is a kind of expression of a life without preconceptions about romantic relationships or how relationships between any group of people, romantic, sexual, should look. I felt like, certainly with the sexual politics, that may be quite reflective of its time in a way that it sets out to be very explicit, but there are certain issues that are certainly around consent Mm. that I think 
today we're perhaps far more aware of. This idea of a kind of like three-way relationship is, is something still that very uncommon and people wouldn't necessarily see as this kind of very loving relationship. But there's moments quite consistently, I think, between Lanya and Denny and the kid that are incredibly tender and really, really beautiful. Mm. You can really see how this is a real relationship. It's not um, like a one-off kind of threesome that they're having that you know it has the challenges that a relationship will have in terms of they might get angry with each other or misunderstand each other all these things but yeah uh, there is yeah there is a real tenderness there i mean i should just say it's not the fact that there are three of them that's the problem for me <laughs> it's rather <laughs> that one of them is like 14 years old or something <laughs> oh yeah yeah, yeah 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 and yeah i mean this is what i was meaning about consent you know there's repeated issues of people being very young there's people being <laughs> extremely inebriated during group sex there's yeah. um you know there's there's so many things that i think today set off enormous alarm bells but but at the same time there is also a recognition in the in the kid of lanya's autonomy um, mm. and her absolute right to pursue any desire that she might have regardless of any sense of possessiveness that yeah. might be might be within the kid which does seem sort of very progressive yeah and there's certainly you know the the conversation between george harrison and lanya about rape this happens very early on in the book before so much later in the book which you'd class as statutory or just actual rape at that point you have to think that the words of Lanya are coming as Delaney's kind of way of saying look you know I'm, I'm not a monster I do I do understand the the issues here um, yeah. what she says in that moment is uh, far more progressive than a lot of stuff you might hear today even for the for the listeners Rob can you remind us what the drift of it is so George Harrison part of the kind of mythic allure of this character and I say mythic allure in the kind of the kind of racist understanding of of the society is that he has raped June, this kind of young white girl, and that somehow the the horror of that draws people towards him. And there's a discussion then with with Lanya and um, George explains how this is actually was a consensual sex, and that you know it's very very thin ice about talking about how, you know actually he knew and she knew the type of sex they wanted and mm. that to the outside that would look like it may not be consensual and I think this is very much Delaney suggesting that there are far more forms of sexuality beyond the, the kind of like normal what we consider normal every day that you know people are into lots of different things but Lanya turns around and I can't remember the exact order of the conversation but you know Lanya talks about people who have been raped and the the kind of like the horror of that mm -hmm. and you know it, it does read like dialogue but it's also very passionately put forward. And like a lot of stuff in the book, you know, it doesn't doesn't reach a conclusion that these two things can coexist, that this kind of desire for rough sex necessarily has to exist next to a, um, a thought about consent. And I sort of felt that that's what was happening. You know, there's these two kind of group sex bits later on with the scorpions, which are kind of reversals of each other, where most, if not all, of the male scorpions kind of take it in turns to have sex with this one very inebriated woman. And it, you know, it's really, really uneasy, I think, the way they speak about her. But then a kind of reversal happens where two of the male scorpions get very drunk and all of the females take advantage or whatever, that have sex with them. And that, I felt a little bit like it didn't quite address the, so, you know, it's not quite the same thing to say, oh, but it can happen the reverse as well, and that's mm -hmm. fine. Um, but I think it's questions over sexuality and, and what type of sex can be allowed. I guess it all just comes down to 
to issues of power which are being explored there which is good for being there does does make for some difficult reading sometimes perched along the picnic table in a variety of army jackets paisley shirts and grubby tank tops young people stared through stringy hair someone dragged a sleeping bag in front of the fire shadow pale hairy skin black leather tack stood back from the fire arms folded legs wide the ornate orchid of yellow metal hung from his belt three scorpions stood behind him whispering one was the red-headed freckled black who had pipe whipped him at calkins the other two were darker but his initial start was followed by no more uneasiness somebody swaggered past with a cardboard carton of tin cans crumpled cellophane wrappers paper cups he realized very surprised he was very high thought swayed through his mind shattered sizzled like water in hot ash it's the smoke he thought frantically maybe there's something in this fog and smoke no why were they here why did they mill here his inner skull felt tender and inflamed watch them listen to them put together actions and conversation snatches he searched the screen where perception translated to information waiting for somebody to dance to eat to sing he wished lanya had told him why they'd come but he was very tired so he moved around some day i'm going to die he thought irrelevantly but blood still beat inside his ear he stepped backward from the heat and backward again where was lanya but was too distraught to turn his head everything meant loudly and insistently much too much smoke and twirling over twigs the small stone biting his heel the hot band from the fire across his lowered forehead the mumblings around him that rose here fell there millie stood a few feet in front of him bare legs working to a music he couldn't hear then john crashed down cross-legged in the leaves beside her fiddling absently with the blades around his hand a while ago he realized he had thought once again please i don't want to be sick again please but had hardly heard the thought go by it could only now disinterestedly discern the echo something or one was about to emerge to the clearing he was sure and was equally sure that naked and glistening it would be george it would be june curious if you thought of the scorpion's way of life as utopian the reason i was kind of interested in that was i guess that yeah this brings the two issues of race and and sex together quite well and again another another kind of interview with delaney which is one on uh, lit hub called uh, don't romanticize science fiction which is really really worth reading but he talks about this you know classic link between something being forbidden and something being 
erotic or sexualized and uses this same example or kind of like reminiscence of his father using what would now be considered racial slurs in kind of anger when he Delaney had done something wrong or something mm-hmm. um, but saying at that moment it had no erotic charge but then saying later on when he started to use those words himself in different contexts they they had this huge erotic charge for him mm. And so, yeah, this link of um, the forbidden and and what is erotic. What I was interested in in terms of this utopian idea of uh, of the scorpions was that the power relations within it are shifted slightly along racial lines. Although the kid, their leader, is not black, although he's described to us as perhaps having Native American heritage. That their use of the words with each other meant something slightly different and was perhaps something to do with a kind of like re yeah reshaping or a kind of capturing of those words to take them out of the offensive context and perhaps mm. even because of the sheer amount of sex that seems to go on within that community like recapture some kind of erotic power it's really interesting that in this in this interview with Samuel Delaney he talks very specifically about Tarzan and the apes Mm. And how he found that idea because he knew, you know, he could recognise the racism within that. But there was also some kind of erotic undertones. And of course, there is, as you said, the characters, the members of the Scorpions who are white are very much shown to us and explained to us that they're white. And one of them, of course, is called Tarzan. And one of the quite difficult bits reading about is that um, the kid or the narrator constantly refers to them as Tarzan and the apes. Yeah. And as, when, I, when I read this interview, I suddenly thought, OK, there's perhaps something else going on here about what that relationship was whether it was attempting to turn it on its head whether the scorpions were meant to be kind of allowing what seems like a pretty racist (laughs) understanding of how that kind of subgroup within them functioned because actually the the character of tarzan certainly isn't the leader or in any way in charge of that group they kind of seem to humor him slightly and allow him to hang out with them so I guess that was kind of what I was thinking of in terms of that somehow utopian or or like a post-hippie way of thinking about living communally and what, what that might mean that really did address some of those power structures that weren't addressed in the communal living. You're talking about a kind of not ultimate dissolution of those power structures, but certainly a kind of porousness mm. within them. Just to place against the Scorpions for a second, there's also the Richards, the family, mm-hmm. who seem to be clinging on to artificial sense of normality, trying to live ordinary middle-class lives, even if it means that those lives are kind of ersatz in some sense, right? That yeah. Mary Richards, for instance, is trying to continue to cook nice meals, but they only have canned stuff and uh, yeah. kid remarks upon how he finds it very difficult to eat it and they try and have a sort of civilized um, family dinner every day seemingly but they're also drawn towards what kid represents for them so he seems to be the the sort of ambassador for the kind of life that you're <laughs> describing yeah among among the scorpions perhaps and i was wondering what you thought about their position and the, like their relationship with all this you know are, are they being drawn towards this freer way of life do they see it as romantic in the kid and that's why they're sort of drawn to him or are they trying to kind of civilize the kid in some way you know they give him a bath and and yeah 
well, several baths. So we we learn how he fills up several baths with with grime and filth yeah. uh, from not having washed for so long. I guess I kind of saw it as a bit of both that you know they liked the kind of power structures of being able to be charitable to someone that they see as kind of you know, living in the park and uh, a victim somehow of of what's gone in Bologna that kind of reinforces their status as people that perhaps haven't been affected but also maybe you know it's a kind of domestication i suppose that what is wild is is not so scary if you have a kind of domesticated version do they mention at some point whether he counts as a long hair and they're like well your hair is a bit long but not her yeah um yeah this idea that they might have a version who's actually helpful and it's so it's um, kind of somehow reassuring but they still probably wouldn't venture out but of course then the the thing becomes that the the character of june is is june richardson she's the she's the daughter so the example of some kind of like repressed sexuality but also it's suggested that when this second moon arrives people are kind of shocked and very scared and very quickly as you mentioned earlier it gets called george so yeah it's kind of mythologized even further when this huge supernova sun arrives i think someone kind of jokingly says well that's june Mm. their characters move completely into the idea of of myth and these kind of various origin stories of um, what the moon and sun do interestingly actually quite often the other way around right that the the sun is usually the masculine and the moon is usually the feminine and here we have an inversion of that Mm. there's implicit within the the richards a kind of dissolution of this they might be fighting valiantly to kind of like keep up some kind of normalcy but the kind of like origin myth of this new society in Bologna however long it might last the fires is very much tied in their normalcy is is going to give birth to the new version the new kind of like mythic underpinnings of society Mm. is is living in there under their roof I loved that section of the book I was quite drawn to their characters you know I, I I loved this section of the book as well found particularly Mrs Richards quite sympathetic mm. she's portrayed as being fairly naive not necessarily having a, a particularly broad view of the world but I thought it was a strange decision on Delaney's part if we're meant to see this family as a as a pure parody of a kind of life that people are trying to cling to under these sort of disturbed circumstances it was quite a sympathetic depiction if mm, the definitely. aim was to, to show that this is a way of life that needs to be sort of superseded by something freer. The flaws of both ways of life are apparent throughout. Of course, there's no way of being exhaustive or comprehensive when talking about this book and there's a huge number of things we probably glossed over entirely that that could make up their own episode of of Sherd's podcast but I think it would be unfair of us to skim over the sex in this book because it's just (laughs) that that's something we haven't perhaps expressed quite clearly enough that this this is pornographic, this this text, isn't it? On quite an extreme level, it's very, very <laughs> explicit. Just wanted to mention it because the interesting thing about those scenes is that they don't seem to be pushing towards the erotic at all. You know, they're not like, they're not arousing. I mean, yeah. may- <laughs> they're quite ugly. The references to strange parts of the body like elbows and knuckles and <laughs> crevices and... Like scrotum keeps coming up as, as a word. 
is very strange to read, isn't it? Because it, it seems neither like arousing or titillating. It certainly doesn't feel like it's written in the same way that an actual pornography book would be. Yeah, it's very hard. I mean, I was just wondering what your impressions were of the of the sex scenes in the book. Yeah, I mean, I guess I think as as we've spoken about with the kind of sexual politics, it's um, maybe an attempt to kind of broaden the idea of what sex might be to incorporate what ostensibly is this kind of ugliness. You know, at the very vanilla side of things, we have um, Lanya kind of licking the callous knuckles of the kid and. Um, there's a, a definite kind of like joy in, in this ugliness, as you say. Perhaps where it's the point at which it's it's written, it's a celebration of the breadth of sexuality. And I suppose, you know, it has, let's think of Dessard or Bataille, or there's, there's kind of, there's definite precedence there. Mm. It's just funny to find it in, uh, in this particular type of science fiction mm. novel. Especially as, you know, I, I actually didn't know that it was coming. Um, no, you didn't. <laughs> and no, no, no. Which is kind of great. I think um, I'm. I'm really glad that I didn't. I didn't know because it just adds this this completely different dimension. I don't know. It's hard. It's very hard to know what this would have felt like in the in the seventies. Whether it's kind of like more or less shocking. Um, mm. Whether in, in the seventies there was a, a far more deliberate pushing of boundaries. You know, I think of Game of Thrones as a as a bit of a rubbish example. Um, yeah. But that's a fantasy that's extremely sexualized. But the sex in it is very mainly heterosexual mm. conforms absolutely to contemporary ideas of beauty so in that respect yeah it's it's much more like porn <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah whereas yeah. this once again attempts to undermine traditional structures on every level and this is i guess like a, another one How many shirts does Dahlgren get for you, Rob? I feel, I feel like I'm giving everything really high ratings these days. Maybe it's just... Uh, we've got good know. taste, mate. We're picking yeah, the right books. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it. Um, <laughs> but I think this might be another nine. I really enjoyed it. And I think it's so much because of the, the reading that I've done recently. I think you've also read quite a lot of interviews and heard a lot of interviews. But I just find his voice as it comes across in the fiction and as it comes across in interviews like so fascinating I kind of can't get enough and I think one thing I haven't really said that I really felt about this was that the microscopic attention to detail that is often there you know tiny things like the way that a character will be described moving through space the kid getting down from the loft that he shares with with Denny and Lanya is is so true to life tiny elements like that completely blew me away and it's is definitely an author that I'm going to return to. And, you know, I'm very excited about reading a lot of the, the criticism that he's written and reading more interviews. So um, definitely a nine. What about you? I think I'm going to have to go for something for something very similar. Yeah, maybe maybe an eight to a nine. I certainly really, really enjoyed my, my time with this book and actually went through it very, very rapidly. I found it utterly compelling. The thing that has stayed with me so much is the sort of alienness of everything about this book, that it's language is is alien the kinds of formulations that just seem like they spring from a consciousness you you couldn't possibly fathom the combinations of language that you, you have in here i love what it does in terms of its metafictional aspects are like the the sort of rebellion that the book represents on on so many levels so 
not just on on the plane of its literary construction but also its racial and sexual politics as we've been talking about it just seems like it's as disconcerting a text to to read in 2020 as it as it must have been in 1974 if not if not more yeah it's it's rebelliousness and it's it's alienness are what really stick with me so i'm gonna give it an eight i think fantastic to read it with you rob cool yeah likewise definitely we hope you've enjoyed this episode of shirts podcast if you have any questions or comments about our conversation please write to us at shirtspodcast at gmail.com and if you like the show please leave us a review on itunes it really helps our visibility Thanks once again for listening and we'll see you next time.